Before we get into our message, our study in the book of Acts, we are going to review our church memory verse. So if you have a New King James Version, open up to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you don't, uh, just follow along. I'll read it aloud. So again, we want to work through this. It's a great memory verse. It reminds you of the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. Because we know that there are many so-called churches and clergy who do not believe in the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. And so we want to show you that our belief in the sufficiency and authority of Scripture is not a man-made opinion. It is founded upon the very Word of God. And so this is a very important verse to have memorized, to understand, to meditate on, because it's the basis for our ministry here at this church. We believe teaching the Bible is vital for the very reason we are memorizing here. So again, I'll begin by reading just uh, several words, a short phrase, and if you, the church, can repeat after me. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Follow after me now. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study of the book of Acts. We're calling Authentic Church, and so if you want to turn to the book of Acts, we're going to be taking on a fairly large chunk of Scripture today, which is Acts 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. So again, we're calling our series Authentic Church because we want to ground our practice and experience of the church in what the Bible says the church is and what it ought to be. And in order to do that, we must continually go back to the Word of God and see those ways in which we are aligned with Scripture and we should read, receive comfort and assurance from God that regardless of how things are going in the world, regardless of what other professing believers are doing, if we're doing things by the book, if we're doing things by God's word, then we should be commended and affirmed in what we're doing. We do not look to the opinions of men. That is always a tempting thing to do. It's tempting to do it perhaps especially when it's other believers saying you ought to do it, and you ought to do it this way, and you should stop doing it that way. But we ultimately receive our authoritative word from the Bible itself. And so we're going to read verses 12 through 42. We'll pray and we'll get into our message this morning. This is God's word. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest of the people dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, 
so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with them came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look! The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God is exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. 
and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we commit this study of Scripture to your Holy Spirit. For we believe your Holy Spirit is the great evangelist already at work in the world, convicting sinners of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Lord, we pray if any joining us here together, either in person or online, watching today or perhaps sometime in the future, we pray, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin against Almighty God. You would convince them of the only one in whom man is forgiven their sins, Jesus Christ. We pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, you would create a heart of repentance. That man would believe that their chief problem is not about buying and selling and making a profit. It is not about buying a house and paying your taxes, commuting here and there, and moving out of state or any other earthly business. Rather, the chief concern of man is how sinful man can be made right with a holy God. Lord, I understand full well that that message is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. And I pray that you would grant such repentance today. I pray that you would undermine and even destroy the work of Satan. I pray that you would rescue souls from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That someone somewhere today would be transferred from death to life. Lord, I say a prayer for your people who have believed upon your name. They have been born again from above. They have spiritual life. And yet, Lord, now you call them upon a lifelong transformation of giving up more and more of themselves in order to become more and more like Jesus Christ. We pray if in any way, in mind or in body, We have yet to be conformed to Christ. We pray through the teaching of the word this morning, you would grant that our sin nature would be put to death and that the spiritual man in each one of us would be renewed with strength and vigor to live holy lives this week for the glory of God. I ask for your blessing now over this message. May it be glorifying to you and beneficial to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Raise your hand if you have noticed that there has been an increasing tension between the church and the state. Raise your hand if you have noticed 
there is being an increasing tension between the church and the state. For those of you joining online, you might not have been able to see the show of hands, but I would estimate somewhere between 90 and 95% of everyone joining us today has raised their hands. We're all seeing that. And from my own observation, I would have to concur with you. I do believe that there is an increasing tension between church and state. Now, my initial experience, if I were to just go by that experience, I would find myself in a strange place as a Christian. Because in my experience as a Christian, Christianity has enjoyed considerable influence throughout the course of my life, my time here in this country. With my study of American history, even beyond my own lifetime, I would say that Christianity had enjoyed considerable influence in the history of the United States. And so if I were solely to go by my experience and not by the Word of God, I would reasonably conclude that this tension, this increasing conflict between church and state was a strange an unusual thing. But if we allow the scriptures to grant us an eternal perspective, if we allow the Bible to grant us a broader historical picture, we find a rather different picture. What we find in our study of the book of Acts, and you'll see it confirmed today, is that the early church always experienced conflict with the state. Over and over again, as we go through the book of Acts, it's sort of like daily business in the life of the church. The only real question the church faced back in the first century was how much, to what extent, and from where this conflict is coming. That was really the only question. In Acts 5, 12 through 42, what we're looking at is the second time that we see a manifest conflict between the early church and the political powers that be. There was an earlier occasion, but if you remember, in that first encounter, they were arrested and they were brought before a tribunal, but they were let off with a warning. Now we're gonna see the stakes starting to get higher. Though we know from our preliminary reading of this text, the apostles ultimately were released again, but we saw the consequences went up. And so we're already told that as Christians, we should not believe that following Jesus, being faithful to him, living holy lives, studying the Bible, fasting diligently, praying fervently, giving to the poor, doing good deeds, will guarantee that we will not be persecuted. There's no such guarantee. In the text before us this morning, we see that the apostles not only were arrested as they were before, but they were physically beaten. They were actually beaten. 
And we're going to see as the text continues, things would grow more and more difficult for the church. But on the contrary, while many people would assume that an increasing conflict between church and state is a dire predicament, the ironic thing, because of the power of the gospel and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we actually find that the persecution only grew the church, purified the church, and produced a deep abiding joy that was not based upon human circumstances. So as the conflict rose, we don't see that the church diminished. We see that the joy of the church increased and that the purity, the holiness, and even the quantity of the church grew at that time. And so what I want to do is walk us through some of the salient points in our study this morning. I would first like to draw your attention to what I find is a quite interesting verse and one perhaps skipped over in our own private studies, and that is verse 13. So glance again at verse 13 for a moment. It says, Yet none of the rest of the people dare join them, but the people esteem them highly. Meditate on that for a moment. Yet none of the rest dared to join them. Now, Many church growth experts today, upon hearing this news, would immediately launch a three-month church growth committee into why it was the rest dared not join. This would be seen as a problem. This would not be seen as a marker of righteousness or holiness. It would be seen as a barrier to be overcome. And so a committee today might be launched, they would assess it, they would come up with findings and they would bring it back to the committee and here's what they would say. Our findings have demonstrated that indeed, there are many that are scared to join our church. They don't dare do so. And here is the reason. The last time hypocrites were exposed in our church, they died. In case you missed, last week's study, it was the study of Ananias and Sapphira, who, because they lusted after status and honor in the community, lied to the Holy Spirit, and we saw that they were struck down dead. Verse 13 is directly related to that event. In other words, the reason some did not join was because they saw that the early church was a holy church. The church was not a place for hypocrites. There was a healthy fear of God so that people who were not serious about God, they were not serious about the gospel, they figured, you know what? This is not a place I want to go. Because I recognize the only reason I should want to be here is if I truly want Jesus. And so I would say quite ironically, if we are obsessed with numeric growth, we may actually stop the very things that the early church was practicing. We want to be a holy church. We don't want to tolerate sin because that might bring in some more people. 
Again, we want to certainly be gracious. What we're not doing is telling anyone sinners aren't welcome here because then we would have to leave the church as well. But what we do want to insist upon is that we are sinners who have confessed our sin and have been saved by the righteousness of Christ. And that the evidence of that, the evidence of it, is a holy life. That we seek no longer to do life our way, but to do life God's way. And so I think for the American church today, we have to be especially careful that as the world grows increasingly dark, as many people harden their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we don't increasingly lower our standards in order to get more and more people to feel comfortable. We cannot do that. The best we can do is to, in humility, search our own hearts and say, Lord, if sin in our hearts, if pride, if hypocrisy, if anything else is what is preventing others from joining our company, Lord, grant us repentance. But if the reason some dare not join us is because they see, wow, this place is for serious people and I'm not serious. Well, then we have to stand firm in the conviction that the Lord prefers a holy church above a hypocritical church. Another passage that we want to look in that stands out is verse 20. Here we see that an angel of the Lord has released the apostles from prison. Now imagine this. If any of us were to be arrested for our Christianity, not for our stupidity, those are two totally different things, right? Sometimes Christians, in the name of stupidity, will get arrested or, or break the law. And then because they're Christians, they'll say, well, well, God made me do it. Or there's a, I'm, I don't know where, but I'm sure there's a Bible verse somewhere that supports my dumb behavior. We have to make sure that if we're going to get arrested, it is not for our opinion. It is not for an idiosyncrasy, but it is for the word of God. We have to make sure of that. And so the apostles had been arrested for precisely that reason. They were told to bear witness to the name of Jesus Christ, and so they did. And so they were arrested for that. But you can imagine, it's one thing to be courageous when it doesn't cost you anything. It's another thing to be courageous when it does. And the apostles have tasted what it is like to be persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been put in jail. Now, no doubt, they're probably praying to be released. I think as any of us would, Lord, I'm in this jam. I, deep down, maybe I kind of thought if I just did things your way, I wouldn't get into any trouble, but here I am. Lord, set me free. And you probably would be tempted if the Lord does get you out of that jam, you're like, well, I'm not doing that again. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to speak in his name again. I'm not going to witness for him. I'm not going to do that again. But notice what the angel says. He released them from their imprisonment in order to say this. Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. In other words, the very thing that got them arrested, they're now being set free, and the angel is sending them right back to where they went. 
do we have the level of courage and conviction of the apostles? In our human flesh, I think we can probably, at least many of us, can say no. I don't think I do. I prefer not being in jail so much that I'll do whatever I got to do to get out of it. And if that means being silent about Jesus, well, then I'll just say silent prayers. I, I don't want to get arrested. But I think what the early church was called to do was to be bold and courageous. As a matter of fact, more than what are called, quote unquote, sign gifts. So more than the gift of tongues, more than the gifts of healing and miracles, the thing you see the Holy Spirit giving to all the early church was the gift of boldness. Over and over, boldness in the face of adversity to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's sending them right back to the very task that got them in trouble with the authorities. We are being taught that when it comes to proclaiming the name of Jesus, we are to be stubborn. This is where being stubborn is good. I try to teach my children, most of whom are quite stubborn. I'm sure they take after me, not their, their wonderful mother. But I try to tell my children, most of the time they're stubborn. It's usually about things they shouldn't be stubborn about. But once in a while, I will. there's an opportunity to teach them that stubbornness is not always wrong. There can be a holy stubbornness. And so what I don't want to quench in my children is stubbornness per se, but stubbornness about sin. What I don't want them to do is remain steadfast in wrongdoing. But what I do want to produce is children who are stubborn for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? I want warrior men and women, warrior boys and girls. Don't quench in them that fighting spirit. I think we do live in a day and age when the culture is trying to domesticate young boys and girls. It is trying to quench that, that fighting spirit in them. And as I said, I partially understand why. Due to the sin nature, that fighting spirit in us as human beings can easily go wrong. It can easily go wrong. And so the world in some ways is trying to contain it, to control it, and subdue it. But my concern is that in the doing of that, that fighting spirit that God wants for his people might also be quenched as well. And I believe the day and the time is coming when the church is going to need stubborn men and women who are valiant in battle for the Lord. That they are willing to pay a cost to follow Jesus, even if you didn't have to do that. I know just practically and materially as, as a parent, I'm a Christian parent. More than anything, I want my kids to know Jesus. More than anything, if, if they were to die or if I were to die, I would want to know they were going to heaven. More than anything. More than them getting a good job and getting a good education and having a nice house and having a nice family and having children of their own. More than that. I want my children to know Jesus. But as a Christian parent, I also care about the earthly matters of life. 
I do care about where they live. I do care about if they're able to earn a living. I do care about their health care. I do care about whether Social Security is actually going to be there or not. I do care about these things. But more than that, I need to teach my children to be guardians of the gospel. Because as Christians, we have been entrusted with the gospel. We are not kings who get to decide what we want to do with our lives. We are ambassadors. We are envoys. We are sent ones. We are ones to whom the king, that is Jesus, has given us a message. Paul calls it a treasure. For we have this treasure in earthly vessels. That's the gospel. And it is not up to us what we want to do with that. Or if we want to change it to make it more palatable to the emerging sinfulness of our culture. That is not up to us. We need to recognize that spiritually speaking, we're not going to be leaving the same kind of world to our children and our grandchildren. And to some extent, that's not our fault. That is what other people are choosing to do. But what is our responsibility is whether or not we will train our children to be warriors for the Lord. Not in hatred, not in bitterness, not in killing, but in love, in peace, in hope, in righteousness. We need powerful warriors for the Lord. And that is what we see in the early church. After getting beat up in a 12-round fight, they went right back into the ring. They just went right back in and they're going at it. And that is what the Lord wants for His church. Look, we're probably, I think many of us are going through spiritual battles. But often the case, it's been that it's individual. Sort of like, well, I've got this going on in my family. We got these physical ailments. We got these financial problems. We got these relationship issues. And those are, those are significant. Those matter. We want to care about those together as a family. We want to pray for one another, help one another. But the time is coming when the problems won't be individual. They will be corporate. It'll be problems you could easily escape because they're not yours individually. You could say, hey, I'm going to avoid this suffering by disassociating from the body of Christ. That'll be the temptation. There will be a way to get out of it, but it'll be the way of denying Jesus Christ. And we do not want to produce men and women who would ever concede to such a demand. Moving on, we see that as the apostles were set free, they went out once again. The high priests and the officials went to the jail, and again, to highlight the miraculous nature of these events, the guards are still there, and the doors are still shut. So in this case, there's no natural explanation for what happened. Many times, God uses natural instruments. He'll use people. He'll influence public officials. He can influence police officers. He can influence FBI. He can influence people. But I think sometimes we rely too much on that. We just got to get influence everywhere. 
Because if we don't influence people, we have no power. Imagine saying that to the early church. Oh, there's no way we'll get the apostles out unless we have enough earthly influence. No, this was a miraculous deliverance. This was no earthly power. This was the power of God. Doors shut, doors guarded, set free nevertheless. And that's the kind of deliverance that God can produce for his people. And we need to trust in that kind of deliverance. After finding that this was the case, the officials come back to the high priest and they report, look, the people you just arrested for professing Christ in public in the temple are now doing the very same thing. And so the, the captain uh, go, immediately go back and they grab the people. Now notice this in verse 26. It says that, captain went with the officers and brought them without violence for they feared the people lest they should be stoned now notice they treated the early christians well but not out of the kindness of their own hearts at this time the christians were living such righteous and holy lives that they did have general influence over people not political powers per se mind you Remember, power, even earthly power, is not just about the people in the high and mighty positions. It is influence over the masses, over people. Do people look at you? Do people look at us as Christians and say, wow, see how they love God. See how they love people. See how they take care of one another. See how they support missions work in Africa and the Philippines and Costa Rica and help pregnant mothers considering abortion to choose life rather than death. See how they support women, widows, struggling and how they bless them. See how they do that. And the churches have favor. And the reason that worse things didn't happen to the church was not the kindness of the hearts of those in power, but fear for their own lives. We need to be mindful even about earthly influence and how complex it is and how there are different levels. I think anyone who's studied politics and some of the recent revolutions in third world countries, the role social media has played in actually toppling governments. Many people point to Omar Gaddafi being overthrown in Libya, and some commentators have said that that was all pioneered through social media. That they were rallying people who did not have quote-unquote political power, but they were able to overturn and topple the government through massive population support. Christians need to be mindful. We need to not be less wise, but more wise in our understanding of God's hand of providence, how he delivers and stands for his people. If it is not people in authority where the church has influence, it may be in the population at large. And I would say once again that this was because of God's mighty hand on the church and the holiness of people's lives and their love for their neighbors. They had a good testimony to those who were outside. As the apostles were brought before them, it says in verse 28, the high council said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Highlight verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, 
We ought to obey God rather than men. That is a very important verse. And it is going to be a guide for us as we go into the uncertain future of our lives here in America. But I do want to explain what it means. Because there is confusion about that statement. I think errors can go in either of two extremes. On the one hand, there are critics of Christianity. There are those who fear Christianity. And they would point to this verse as being a verse that suggests that Christians are basically anarchists. That the Bible commands them to be disloyal to every civil authority. And therefore, there should be no tolerance or concession to Christians or the church at all. For deep down, they believe they don't need to obey anything that the civil government is doing. So if that were anyone joining us today, if it were someone from the city, if it were someone from the county, if it were someone from the state, if there were someone from the White House or the FBI were to be among us this morning and they're, they're keyed in, I don't know, are these people insurrectionists? Like, what, what's going on? Uh, I don't know much of the Bible, but I know Acts 5.29 says they ought to obey God rather than men. And I'm a little antsy as to what they might do. Well, if that's you, let me explain what this verse actually means. This verse does not mean that Christians are to disobey every earthly authority at all times. It doesn't say that. It also doesn't say that Christians are to disobey the earthly authorities most of the time. This does not say that earthly government as such is even a bad thing. For what I would want to do then is say we must always interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's referred to also as the analogy of faith. And friends, your best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So if someone takes Acts 5.29 and they start building a way of life and a movement and a church and whatever it is on this, but they don't look at what the Bible has to say about government elsewhere, then you're going to be mishandling the Word of God. And whenever we mishandle the Word of God, we actually dishonor the God of the Word. And so it's a big deal, especially for teachers of the Word, because there's a greater accountability, a greater judgment, James says, on those who teach the Bible. I would point them to Romans 13 and to 1 Peter 2. You don't need to turn there, but you can just write them down. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Here's the gist of what you will find there. In a fallen world where man is sinful, inherently sinful, earthly civil governments are generally a good thing. That's actually what the Bible teaches. Earthly civil governments are generally a good thing. Because human beings are sinful without any system of accountability what you will have is what Genesis records prior to the flood. Where man's heart was wicked, exceedingly, pervasively, in every thought and action, and bloodshed was all over the face of the earth. We probably can't even imagine 
how bad it was before the flood. And it's easy to look at the flood as a Bible critic and say, oh, God's mean and he's evil. Look, he judged the people of the flood. That actually tells me more about the fact you have no idea how evil people can be. Well, let me remind you how evil people can be. Last week, I, I read for the first time a book by Holocaust survivor Eli Weasel. And he records his time suffering in a Nazi concentration camp. And though it's true in the modern Western world, many things have gotten better. Many things have gotten better. Even, even evil people don't tend to do as evil things as people in other times and places. But Nazi Germany is a reminder that, yes, even in the modern world, even in a technological, scientific, quote-unquote, advanced age, mankind is capable of unimaginable evil. Yes, man can get that bad. And because human beings are that bad, God says that he has instituted in Romans 13 that even imperfect government is used by God to limit evil in the world. So no one could read Acts 5.29 and say, every time I don't feel like obeying the speed limit in my new sports car, I go 150, and then when I get pulled over, I say, <clears throat> I ought to obey God rather than man. <laughs> Try that the next time CHP pulls you over. It's not going to work. Nor should it work. Because Paul said God uses civil authorities. Okay. On the other hand, I want to point out the opposite extreme because this is important. There are some people that have all, they've almost attributed deity instead of God, but to human government. To the point where they will obey mindlessly and blindly anything and everything that a government could say. Once again, I can point you to Nazi Germany. Our human governments, though generally good and necessary to limit evil in the world, but are, can they go wrong? Oh, they can go wrong and they can go terribly, terribly wrong. There's no way that Christians can say, well, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 means that if the government says I must stop proclaiming the name of Jesus, then I must do it. Absolutely not. You are required. This isn't an option. If anyone tells us stop preaching the name of Jesus, I am commanded by God to disobey. I cannot stop. And that is what it means. So my message is, Christians are to be good earthly citizens to the very best of our ability, generally speaking. But if and when the civil authorities that be ever tell us to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, we must disobey. Because at that point, to obey the civil authority would to be disobey a higher authority, which is God. And so this is a vital principle for us, just as it was for the early church. And as a matter of fact, if anyone thinks that cross-referencing a different book, such as Romans or 1 Peter, is complicated, you can even just go back to the previous chapter, chapter 4, 
And you can even see in verse 19 a clarification of what Peter means. But Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. So that is once again a different way of saying what Acts 5.29 says. The question is, it's not God versus governments and authorities. The question is, who is the highest authority? And the answer is, God is and must always be the highest authority in the life of of the believer. As we move to the end of the chapter, I want to highlight a couple of things that might seem strange coming from a recently persecuted group of believers, and that's verses 41 and 42. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I don't think there's any way the Christian church in America could ever endure persecution if they do not learn the secret of rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is something that all of us believers are called to do even today. The book of James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. Going through marriage problems, going through financial problems, facing physical health problems, Christians are to practice. And man, does it take practice. We are to practice joy in the face of suffering. We want to do this individually and we want to do it now because the time may be coming. When together as the church, as the church we will suffer. As the church we will be persecuted. And as the church we must rejoice together that we would be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You see, the reason they were able to do this is because they believed that Jesus had first suffered for them. The only way to rejoice in suffering is to see that Jesus rejoiced in suffering for you. He went before you. He bore your sorrows and your sicknesses and your suffering. He went to the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, though despising his shame. As Christians, it's not that we love the pain itself. We rightly hate it but we love what it produces. Christ-likeness. Christ-nearness. And the chapter ends, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The church must continue to do what the early church did 2,000 years ago. They continue to preach Christ week in and week out, meeting after meeting, month after month, year after year. They never ceased. We want to continue to be a church that is a source of biblical truth. We want to be a church that loves one another and is gracious towards one another and helps one another to overcome sin. And to overcome sin, there has to be confession of sin. 
There has to be the willingness to tolerate the fact that other people are sinners in the church. But we want to be gracious towards one another and we want to grow closer to the Lord. We don't want to be a place that says, hey, come here and keep on sinning and we're fine with it. We can't be that church. But we can be a church that says, if you are a sinner in need of a savior, there should be no church that is more welcoming to you than we are here. By God's grace, I pray that is who we'd be and it would be our love and our boldness for Jesus that would win souls for Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before thee this morning and we thank you and praise you for your word. For it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I thank you that through your word, through the hearing of the word, faith is produced in us. We pray that we would now respond to the word that we've heard. Lord, I pray that by your grace, we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Lord, we pray that as your word is function as a mirror today, showing us our true spiritual condition. We pray if there's anyone here who recognizes that they are a sinner in need of a savior, that they've been living a life without meaning, without purpose. A life of futility, a life that is bound up in earthly things that no matter how much they try to hold on to, to accumulate, to increase, one day they will lose it all at the grave. And then they will have nothing. And they will stand before you and give an account for what they did with their lives. Lord, and I would not want that person, that man or that woman, to leave here today not knowing where they stand eternally. And so if there's anyone this morning that needs to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, for the scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, we pray for your people today who have placed that faith in Jesus. They are born again. They have not lost their salvation, for you have them firmly in the palm of your saving hand. And nothing can cause them to perish. But being in your grip, Lord, you desire that we be in your image. And so through this time of singing and praise, I pray that you would transform us. There would be a metamorphosis, a changing in what we do with our bodies, in what we do with our mind, in what we do with our time, in what we do with our money. We pray that there would be no area of our life in which Jesus Christ is not said to be Lord. We ask for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.